welcome. Nice to see you all. Um, my name's Ed, for those of you who don't know me, and I lead the church with my wife, Hannah. This is the second of two talks. Uh, the last one was last week, and this is the second one uh, this week, and it is about the subject of money. So can I say, just in the outset, if you are visiting us, if you are checking us out for, for a bit, if this is not your church, you're very, very welcome to be here. Um, this is going to be about money. Please just allow it to wash over you. You can, you know, check your phone, have a little snooze. Hopefully it will be very interesting, because I can be interesting now and again. Uh, but please don't feel that this necessarily applies to you. It may apply to you, and if you want it to apply to you, that would be great. Um, but really, this is for the home team. Um, with regards to money. And last week I talked about um, how Jesus tells us to be shrewd with money. And I have to say uh, that it is a very, very good talk last week. It really is a very good talk uh, and well worth downloading um, from the uh, website. Not all my talks are worth downloading. Last week uh, really was. So if you missed it, please do that. But it was about how Jesus um, tells us to be shrewd with money. Uh, and the first step to this is really acknowledging uh, that money has a dark side. There is a reason that Jesus talks about money so much. In fact, he talks about it more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. And the reason he talks about it is because money is extremely powerful. It can become, as Jesus describes it, a sort of all-encompassing, powerful, godlike entity. And he does not want us to be ignorant of this fact, and he definitely does not want us to come under its spell. So he talks about it a lot. And he personifies it as unrighteous mammon, a sort of godlike figure. Uh, in our parlance, it might be filthy lucre, something that can um, uh, encompass us and take control of our lives. So that was last week. And on one level, it would be a lot easier for all of us if that was the whole story if money was just bad. Because if it was just bad, we could do everything we, in our power to try and avoid it at all costs. And that would be very easy to live life. If we found ourselves making any, we could just give it away straight away. It would be something like mosquitoes, or the music of Drake, or the sport of golf. Something to avoid at all costs because it might infect us with its illness. So we want to get, I, um, I make jokes about Drake the whole time. Um, uh, if you're listening, Drake, I love you. <laughs> Don't love your music. Um, anyway, but to do this with money, to just see it as something um, bad, is actually to miss a whole um, thrust of biblical teaching about the other side of money, the light side of money. And part of Christian maturity actually comes from holding both of these actually sometimes paradoxical streams of teaching about money together so that we can treat it as Jesus wants us to. It's neither all bad nor is it all good. It can cause serious pain, but it can also cause serious joy and life for people. So, having focused mainly on the negative side last week, let us, way focus on the positive side this week. On the light side of things in the biblical witness, wealth is seen not just as the generous, abundant gift of God to people, but also money can, even more startlingly, actually be a means by which we draw closer to and enhance our relationship with God. 
So in the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden is this lavish abundance of a place where everything is declared to be either good or very good. And the word there doesn't just mean good, like passable, that'll do. It means excellent and bountiful and beautiful in every single way. This is the gift of God to the world. And he continues to lavish his abundance on various people throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. So Abraham, he says, I will make you rich and prosperous. And he is very rich in cattle and he's very rich in um, silver and in gold. And various other figures uh, are also similarly abundantly gifted by God. Job, Isaac, and most famously King Solomon, three examples. So let's pause there briefly. Does this mean that wealth is therefore a sign of God's favor on some people. And by implication, poverty is a sign of God's displeasure towards some people. Well, we can only hold that position if we ignore most of the teaching of the New Testament when it comes to money. Not least, Jesus' acute warnings about the destructive potential power of money Harder it is, it's very hard, he says, for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And by implication, it's therefore easier for the poor person to enter the kingdom of God. And most notably, we can only, do, uh, we can only suggest that God's favor is therefore towards the wealthy people if we ignore the example of Jesus. Surely, no one has been more blessed than Jesus of Nazareth, the man in whom God was pleased to have the whole of his fullness dwell. And yet Jesus it is who gives up all the riches of heaven and is born in a stable and lives a life of poverty because he wants to example what it is to be true humanity. So, no, it does not mean that wealth is a sign of God's favor, but it does mean that wealth and material things are neither antithetical to the spiritual life, nor are they inconsequential to it, and they are actually intimately and positively related to the spiritual life. So, if you happen to be wealthy, and as I think I probably exposed in most of us last week, if we're able to walk out of this room, down the corner, across Hollywood Boulevard, and pay four dollars, four dollars, four whole dollars for a coffee, for a coffee, $4, then we, globally speaking, are rich. So if we happen to be wealthy for, for whatever reason and by whatever measure we want to use, do not feel guilty about being so. And don't feel like you shouldn't be. And worse, do not feel like God does not want you to be. Sadly, some people actually do really feel this. They feel terribly guilty for the money that they have. Now, I think there are some circumstances where it is right for us to give away it all. And really, that's when God says, give away it all. But for most of us, it would be better to actually hold the tension of, it is okay for us to have money. And to not do so actually belies a false understanding and appreciation of money in God's kingdom. So, the Old Testament has a positive picture of wealth and money, and so too does the New Testament. There is, of course, more of a dark side in the New Testament than in the Old Testament, but money and wealth are nevertheless still seen as a way not only of improving relationships between people, but also deepening our experience of God. The wise men, they bring extreme wealth to the baby Jesus as an act of exaggerated overabundant 
worship. It's when Zacchaeus generously pays back more than he is either legally or morally obliged to do to all the people that he's cheated that Jesus then proclaims salvation has come to this house. And the likes of Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus are all there using their wealth for the benefit of Jesus and his kingdom. And most importantly, Jesus commands us to pray for daily bread. And when he does that, he is bringing our need, our material provision into the spiritual realm. So material things are not to be despised. In fact, they are part of our true spirituality. The proclamation of some, and you may have heard people say this, that, oh, I don't pray for myself. I just don't pray for myself. There are far more important things to pray for than me. The problem with that proclamation is one, sounds a bit pious. You know, you're probably not that fun at a party. And two, sounds a bit arrogant, because what do you mean you do not need help? You don't pray for yourself, you don't need help, surely you need help. I need help from God, surely everyone needs help from God. A bit pious, a bit arrogant, but thirdly, it's actually not obeying the big JC. And that's who we're supposed to be obeying. He says, pray for your daily bread. Pray for it. Why? Because you need it, and having prayed for it, you can receive what God wants to do, which is bountifully bless people. He wants to give people things. That's what he wants to do because he loves you. So pray for daily bread, because your material needs are important. And this really is the central teaching of the light side of the biblical picture of wealth. Two things. Firstly, all of it is God's provision. Everything we have is created by God to bless and enhance life. And often it comes to us despite, not because of, our best intentions to get it. We just get it anyway. A bottle of Chateau Lafitte from Bordeaux from most years will cost you about $500. $500 at retail price for six glasses of wine. Or in Hannah's case, four glasses of wine. <laughs> One bottle, $500. Let's ponder this for a second. These are grapes that have grown on centuries-old vines and then have been meticulously looked after and watered and fed and then picked at exactly the right time and then trampled and then uh, pressed down and put into bottles and fermented and then left and then they are so extraordinarily tasty and beautiful that people pay $500 for one evening's, not even half an evening's joy in a bottle. This is the bounty of creation. This is how extraordinarily abundant our God is and his creation for us is. is. He has created this for us to enjoy life. $500 of wine. And do you know what a 2009 bottle costs? 2009 is usually held to be the best year of recent years in Bordeaux. $500, not even a chance, not even a grand. $1,500 for four glasses for Hannah. $1,500. 
Why? Because all of the perfect conditions were there that year. And no doubt, when these seasoned winemakers are going, wow, this year is looking good, they are going, this, this stuff, forget the $500, this stuff is going to be amazing. How extraordinary. And this was something the ancient Israelite farmers knew as well. Of course, they would work hard every year to bring a harvest, but they knew that when it was bountiful or that whenever anything happened, it was because of God's goodness to us. Look at the world around us. Drive through Malibu and have a look at a sunset. This is the extraordinary bounty of God to humankind. If you have ever worked hard to get something and you've done everything right to get it, and you've put in the time and you've done the research, a part in a film, a business deal, a promotion, whatever it is, you have tried your hardest to get this, but it hasn't happened, and then out of nowhere, something even better that you haven't tried for has fallen in your lap. You will understand this point about God, that he wants to give stuff to us all the time. That's what he's like. Because he cares deeply for us as his children. So firstly, God provides it all. And secondly, closely linked, God owns it all. There is hardly anything clearer in the Bible than the idea that the whole world and everything in it is God's. Now, we as Western individualistic type people, we don't like this. Because we've been taught, no, it's yours. You earned it. After all, the shoes on my feet, I bought it. The clothes I'm wearing... I bought it. The rock, I am rocking. I bought it because I depend on me. Now, I understand um, the positive sort of independence for women and all that stuff. But really, no, I don't. Uh, I would love to. I am learning. But anyway, the point being, that is um, a refrain for our age, is it not? In England, we have this um, phrase this sort of uh, maxim of an Englishman's house is his castle. And that could be applied to any Western nation. The idea that we work very hard to earn enough money to own our house, and then our house is ours, and it will protect us, and it is like a security against all the horrible stuff, and it is ours, and no one can take it away from us. Unfortunately, this is just not the truth, the biblical truth, of what life is like. God it is who owns it all. Absolutely everything. And it would be good for us to try and shake off the belief that it's all ours and we earned it. Because it will suck us into this controlling dark side of money which says, get more, get more, get more. It is yours, it is yours. Instead, being aware that it's all owned by God frees us from anxiety about money, about possessions. Uh, John Wesley was a Methodist preacher, and he was, I think, slightly unceremoniously told one time, just after he was preaching, that his house had burnt down. By the way, John, your house has burnt down. Uh, But Wesley's response was, no, 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 the Lord's house has burnt down, and great, one less thing for me to worry about. Now, aside from making that probably was making Wesley, because he said that, slightly annoying to be around, it, it is actually true. 
the more we are able to see that it's all God's, the more that we don't have to worry about any of it. So bearing in mind all of that, let us listen to some more of Jesus' teaching. Andy, I'm just going to do verse 2 to 4. Verse 1 to 4, sorry. So not the second but if that's okay. Be careful not to practice your righteousness, this is Jesus speaking, in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So, giving is not for show. I think that's pretty obvious. But it also needs to be treated very carefully. This is a fragile thing we're talking about. It So carefully, in fact, it would be better to not let your other hand know what one hand is doing, because your other hand might tell that other hand not to do it. So just do it without worrying too much about what else might stop you from doing it. And most importantly, verse 2, it does not say if, it says when. It says, so when you give to the needy, it does not say, so if you give to the needy, it does not say if you happen to have a whole load of money suddenly fall into your lap and then you think, oh, maybe I should give some of that away to the needy. It says when you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. So annoying. Jesus is unequivocal in the expectation. Everyone will be giving to the needy. Now, does this mean that you, I, anyone here has to? Absolutely not. I really mean it. No, you don't. Extraordinary message of Jesus' grace is that everyone gets in if they respond. If they want it, they can have it. They can have him, irrespective of anything they've ever done and anything they ever will do. So no, of course you don't have to give money. You never have to give money to anything. You can hold it all to yourself. You can be a miserly old Scrooge for the rest of your life. And do you know what? I mean this. Jesus will love you more than anyone else in the whole world, all the time, anyway. Such is the extraordinary power of his grace. So no, you don't have to give money. But why wouldn't you want to? Because the reason Jesus expects that this is just happening anyway is because it is very good for us and it is very good for the world. The thing is, we are all so closely connected to our money, to the money that we have. It's like it is part of who we are. It's why we are so obsessed with what people are worth, what sort of house they have, what sort of car they drive, what sort of preacher sneakers they have. We are obsessed with it because it is who they are. We cannot really separate who we are from our worth. Carl Menninger was um, one of the leading psychiatrists uh, in the world for about 50 years. And he told a story of one wealthy patient that he came across who um, had, um, had a massive windfall, huge amount of money. And Menninger said to him, so what are you going to do with all that money? 
And the patient replied, um, just worry about it, I suppose. And then manager said, do you get pleasure from worrying about it? And the patient replied, no, but I get such terror when I think of giving it to somebody. The terror is very real to all of us. Let us just admit that to ourselves. We find it terrifying giving away a part of ourselves because it is a part of ourselves. What might happen? But this is precisely why it is so important to do. Because when we are giving money, we are releasing a little bit more of our egocentric selves and our false security built around these things, and we are displaying actual, real faith. This is the thing that God really likes. As we often say, faith is the magic with him. We are, for once, not just singing about, I surrender all. Oh, I do. I just surrender it all. I do, and I'm going to sing it at the top of my lungs with my hands in my air because I'm surrendering it all. We're not just singing about it. We are actually doing just a little bit of it. And as we give ourselves to him, he comes close to us, and he it is who fills us with his presence and gives us what we're most in need of, which is more of him. And as anyone who has mastered generosity will tell you, it's actually incredibly joyful and freeing to give away stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine um, who is benefiting from actually something that both Hannah and I and our kids are benefiting from, which is someone who is connected to the church offering for free their incredibly um, valuable professional resources. I don't want to go into too much detail because it will then become obvious who this person is. But anyway, they are offering these, de these services. Um, okay, I'm going to say it because it's now just sounding weird. It's a dentist. <laughs> Free dentistry. That's what we're talking about here. Okay. So anyway, my friend goes um, to this person and she was uh, astounded that he would do it anyway. Um, and then while she's sitting in the chair as these people are doing stuff, for stuff that she wouldn't be able to afford anyway. And she just bursts into tears. Bursts into tears because of the joy and the relief and the benefiting from someone else's generosity. And then the dentist, he bursts into tears too because he's so happy. And then the nurse, she bursts into tears too. All three of them are just crying. Should have been doing dentistry, but they're crying. <laughs> Because of the joy, because of the joy of giving away ourselves to other people, it does not get better. It does not get better. It's good for us, and it's good for our world. So as I've sought to show, God created the world as a bountiful, rich place for everyone to enjoy. But of course, it's obvious, not least from the fact that Jesus says give to the needy, that not everyone is enjoying the bountiful, glorious riches of this world that we were supposed to enjoy. Some people do not have more than enough, and that's what God wants to give us. They don't even have enough. And throughout the biblical narrative, God's plea to his people 
is to sort that situation out with him. So, given that, can we all just agree together this morning that we will reject any version of the crap teaching that God helps those who help themselves, or we've all just got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Now, I don't want to get into economics or politics. Godly good work is very important. Laziness is not a godly attribute. But Jesus quite clearly, is far more interested in getting people out of their suffering than how they got into their suffering as some sort of theoretical exercise in the first place. And what he definitely says is their suffering is neither the result directly of their sin or their father's or mother's sin. And in the Old Testament, the stress on the resources of God is so strong that the whole economic system is set up in a very strange way to benefit the poor. So, for instance, when you're plowing your field, you've got to leave some strips around the outside uh, unplowed so that the poor can just take that. And then every seven years, you've got to leave it fallow and the poor can have whatever um, comes up as a result. And then every 50 years, all slaves are released, all captives are set free, uh, all debts are cancelled, and um, all property is returned to the, pre, uh, to the first ever owner. And the reason God does this very strange kind of uh, economic um, kind of, uh, what's the word? I wrote it down. He um, upsets everyone's economic apple cart. I actually stole that. Uh, but he does that because... Plain and simply, it's all mine, God says. The land is all mine. And so when we acknowledge that God it is who owns everything, that's when we change the, the nature of our questions. Our questions can start with, how much of my money should I give to God? And when we realize it's all God's, it's much more about how much of God's money should I keep for myself? Fundamental. Finally, a quick word on verse 4. When you give, God will reward you. Our primary motivation for giving of ourselves, of which our money is an integral part, is not to receive some sort of special reward from God. It is, as I've sought to explain, rather a way to acknowledge the truth that it's all his anyway. It's secondly, a way in which we can draw closer to God as we give ourselves to him. And thirdly, a way in which we can participate with God to help all the needs of the world and to make it the bountiful place that it was always supposed to be. These, in and of themselves, are our rewards. And they are our motivation to do it. Because... Ultimately, they constitute a reward much greater than anything that we could receive, either financially or materially. They are him, his presence. And where he is, we are set free. So, given that, please run as far away as possible from any version of teaching which says anything along the lines of, if you give to God, he will financially repay you even more. He will give you the miracle you've always been waiting for. He will give you whatever um, current need you have financially or otherwise. I want to be completely clear about this. This is in plain, excuse my French, language. Biblical in no way 
and bullshit in every way. Run from it. God will not be bought. He is no one's debtor, and he owns it all anyway. And most importantly, he is far more interested in you, all that you are, than spoiling you with some things, like some sort of celestial slot machine. Do not give in to greed. It would be so, my job would be so much easier if I could actually promise that. If God will give you more money than you give him, I would love that. It would make it so easy. We'd have so many people here, and we'd all be fabulously rich. Wouldn't it be amazing? It doesn't work like that. So, to end, that's enough about the light side of giving. I want to talk a little bit about this church. Lots of people tend to ask us um, why we came to plant a church in Los Angeles. And there are various reasons for that. Uh, one, we knew some people who were here who'd been saying for a while that they would love a church similar to the one that we had grown up with in London and would someone start that. Uh, we kind of visited here and met people and we realized that our personal experience of church, of God, of how to do things could sort of resonate with quite a few people here. Um, we knew that there weren't actually many churches doing something similar to, to, to what we were doing. These are all kind of good and true reasons why we might come to do the church here. But really, the fundamental reason we came to plant a church is because we felt God say to us, go and plant a church in LA, and we couldn't stop ourselves because otherwise we would have just known we were being disobedient. That's why we did it. And that's really what sustained us. And really, in its light, all the other reasons become irrelevant. We felt God said, do it, and so we needed to do it. And it's what sustained us through some difficult times, as I'm sure I've bored you with before. We had quite a long delay on our visa so that we'd taken our kids out of school and we had um, given up our jobs and we'd uh, rented out our house and we ended up living in 11 different homes of friends of ours and we moved 26 different times, uh, all whilst we're waiting to actually come here. And so when we arrived here, we'd got through quite a lot of the money that we'd raised in order to, say, uh, to support us in that time before we could actually start the church. And so really we had about six months, well, we had three months worth of funding and then we loaned another three months. Uh, and we were in a rush to, we've got to launch this church because in six months time all our money's going to run out. And so we launched it uh, on April in 2017. Is that right? Yes. Um, and uh, we knew a handful of people. And we didn't, I don't really know how we've got here, uh, to be honest. I don't know how we've got here. It's amazing. Something to do with God. I would imagine, <laughs> and the generosity of God's people. Because we, ha we don't have some um, kind of uh, celestial um, backer in the sky. Everything that we have to run the church is given by the people who come to the church, without question. Which, on one level, is a bit scary because, um, you know, what if no one comes to the church, which we dealt with for quite a long time when three people were coming to the church. Um, but also it means that we are self-sustaining and we don't have to answer to other people, which is great. Um, and also it means that the people who are here are really belonging and owning and being part of it. And I much prefer that. Anyway. All's to say that two and a half years in, 
we have something meaningful here, which is very exciting. We had 42 people at Alpha on Wednesday. It's the biggest course we've done. It's very exciting to me. Alpha is my favorite thing. Um, I love meeting people, particularly who have, um, are beginning to question their faith or don't have a faith but are interested in exploring it. The refrain I heard over and over again was, I've been brought up in church, but now I want to try and work out whether I actually believe this or is there something more, particularly um, Faith has been very intellectual or doctrine-based, and now I want to work out whether there's something more to it than just that. These things are really exciting, and this is part of the reason we came to do church. But also, as you'll have heard from Georgia, we are going out to serve the, um, serve the homeless in the area around. We will have lots of plans to do much more for the community. That's all run by volunteers. We have an amazing kids' work. Do you know what some of the kids who come to the kids' work say? I actually like going to the kids' work because it's really fun. That's great. Wouldn't you as a child like to have gone to a church that was fun? Wouldn't that have been great? We have um, a great bunch of musicians overseen by Pete, but basically run by volunteers that get better and better each week. We've got city groups run by volunteers meeting all over the city. We just want to do more and more of it. But all of this to say that it's exciting that we've got somewhere. But I do need to express uh, that things are still very lean in terms of what we're doing. Our budget is um, $316,000 a year, which may seem a, a large amount. Last year, last week, I said that that was 10 times less than the average budget of a similarly sized church. That's because I'm terrible at maths. Uh, it's not 10 times less. It's probably about half or a third as much as most similarly-sized church. And we're very lean. Basically, for doing church here, we're paying quite a lot of money to rent this. We pay some salaries. We pay boring things like health insurance. We pay for parking, and we pay for the programs that we do. But really, we are running on a tight, lean budget. So on one level, I'm asking you whether you would like to be part of this. Now, are there other better churches in, in Los Angeles? Probably. Will there be in the future? Almost certainly. They will crop up and they will be brilliant. You'll have gone, why did I pick that one? But what I'm asking you is to commit. Because commitment in this city is rare to come by and commitment is very good for us. As I said last week, when I married Hannah, I didn't think, what a wonderful opportunity for adultery. I thought, great, I'm committed, we are committed, we have found each other, and we are going to be with each other. So I'm asking you, would you like to commit to the church? Churches are a bit like breakfast cereals, some people like Cheerios, some people like Weetabix, just pick the one that you like. But if you'd like to commit, and there's no pressure, but I would find one, I would find one, and we can recommend other ones if this isn't for you but commit and throw yourself into it in all ways. It will do you good. Just to make sure that you're all um, resting assured, no one is getting rich off this. Look. No one is getting rich off this. Um, we're not in it for the money. As I've said, church planting pastor, the career trajectory starts low and stays low. Just pretty flat the whole way through.
but with all that in mind, I wonder if I could show you um, these slides that I showed last week. Just again, to um, help you rest assured, Hannah hates these slides. She's already looking at her feet and clenching her fists like this because she hates these slides. I love these slides. These are my favorite slides. And you have to put them up. <laughs> um, so at the end of each year, um, we have looked for $100,000 as one-off giving. Now, I know that for some people, it's much easier to give in one-off uh, lumps rather than monthly. And so this is our sort of uh, appeal for that. 100 grand uh, by the end of the year. Normally, we do this in um, December, January. But we thought, hey, why don't, why don't we do it in October? And then we've got a nice run-up, and we can have a look at how we're doing each week, week to week. So we launched it last week needing $100,000. This week, we need $100,000. <laughs> um, and here's how it could break down. Uh, one gift of 30, two of 10, eight of three, 16 of one, 20 of 500. This we need in addition to the monthly giving that we already get. So I'm just gonna leave that up there, have a look at that. Every second it's left up there, Hannah gets more annoyed. So that's our one-off giving that we're looking for by the end of the year. Um, and then this is regular giving. If this is your church, would you be able to commit to regularly giving some uh, money a month? Uh, because I don't quite understand the math of this, but we've extended our, or we haven't, we've changed our um, financial year. So it used to run from July to June, and it now runs from October to September um, because of various, um, it just makes more sense. But it means that we've got a sort of three month extra that we're looking for. So whilst um, the budget is 316, we're actually looking for 18,000 a month would be really helpful rather than the 13,000 that we're currently getting, which is 5,000 a month more. I'm sure those maths don't add up. Don't blame me, blame the treasurer. Um, but would you be able to commit to regularly giving to the church? Or if you already give, could you up your giving a little bit? 5,000 a month could break down to two 1,000 a month, three 500, four 250s, and five 100. So um, that's currently where we're at. I hope it goes without saying that you should not give all your money to the church, the money that you give. Give it wherever you see life, wherever you see things that are exciting, wherever you can see that your money will go somewhere to making people's lives better. Do it and also do it because the Spirit tells you. Giving is as spiritual as anything else. We should pray about our giving and we should ask God to tell us what to do because he knows. So do that as often as you can. But if um, I could just leave, uh, could we go back to the 100? Thanks. This is going to be so exciting as we see that number fall down. It's going to be like next week, it's going to be 80,000. I can just feel it. Uh, and uh, it's going to go down and down. And we haven't got, oh, we've got 400,000 extra. It's going to be amazing. And then we'll have, we have a financial oversight committee. Just This is my last thing. And since we've started, we meet um, every quarter or so. And every time that we meet, we go, we haven't got any money. And they go, this is quite a boring job. Because uh, we're supposed to be planning what we do with the money. And all we're doing is going, we need more money. So at some point, we might have money to do more exciting things. That would be fun, wouldn't it?
Let's pray. Again, um, please just let all of this wash over you if this is not your church. Give away of yourself because it is good for you. It enhances your relationship with God. And give away of yourself because it makes the world a better place. Lord Jesus, thank you that you know all our needs and that you tell us to pray for daily bread. And I pray for everyone in this congregation who is struggling financially, who is struggling uh, to make ends meet, for whom money is a serious anxiety. Lord, would you provide as you promised to do? Lord, help us be the answer to other people's prayers. Help us be a community that is marked by generosity, freely giving ourselves away wherever we see need. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now about what we can do. Thank you for the extraordinary, bountiful gift of this world that you've given us and all the resources that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.